1: Hello everyone and welcome to the New Books and Literary Studies channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Britt Edelin, and I have a really special guest here today that I've been very excited to talk with. Um, That is R.A. Judy. Um, a professor of critical and cultural studies at the University of Pittsburgh. And today we are going to be talking about his book, Sentient Flesh, Thinking and Disorder, Oasis in Black, out from Duke University Press last year. Welcome, Professor Judy. Thank you. For, thank you for having me, Griffin. I'm super excited to talk to you about this book. It was an intense read. It was incredible um, and it has really... Uh, shifted a lot of my thinking and been a lot to think with. So I'm very excited to talk to you about it. Um, But before we get into talking about the book, I want to ask you, what is your background um, intellectually that brought you to kind of these studies, as well as what was the origin of your interest in this project and how it came about? mean, mm, that's a complicated uh, question in terms of origins. I'll just say quickly,
0: the origins go back, back to the, uh, decades to uh, uh, the, uh, uh, um, my intellectual formation uh, within the institutions of civil society in the south side of Minneapolis. In more formal terms, my my, my, my fundamental formation is in philosophy, uh, um, primarily Islamic philosophy. Uh, I did a stint, although I didn't take like, a degree at Oswald University, Transferred those credits to the University of Minnesota, where I got an undergraduate degree in Islamic philosophy, uh, with a particular focus on the problems of epistemology, uh, and and that's been my fundamental orientation uh, all the way through. The reasons for that go back to a decision I made in 1972, but but from taking a degree in in Islamic philosophy, I wanted to continue my philosophical studies in a very particular vein. Specifically, that of, of uh, hermeneutical and existentialism, and at the time I began graduate school, uh, which was in 1980 81. the uh, the place where that work was being done was in the emerging field then of comparative, the I say emerging, it had been around since the 1940s uh, with with Spitzer and Auerbach and others initiating that journal, but in the 80s it was it was the the hotbed of a certain kind of intellectual work and theoretical work. And so this is where I did my my graduate work. Again, in that context, focusing on uh, um, um, the nexus between Arabic literature and Western literature. My first book, The the American Canon, was about Arabic language slave narratives and their significance for understanding the dynamics of society and culture. Uh, and uh, that continued through much of my early publication, a lot of work in Arabic, on Arabic literature, but really on this this this, this interesting connection between Arabic, African, and America. Uh, so that's my, if you will, academic uh, formation.
1: The interest in philosophy definitely comes through. I think on every page there's some kind of reference to a name or a, a thought or or some kind of theoretical concept um that it's such a dense work and and you work through them so well you give all of them such intense care and i think that that may be my first question um so when i i was talking to a friend about this book the other day and i described it as proustian um in the sense that you know you'll have some concept that you're talking about and in order to explain that you'll have you'll say okay we have to hear this first and then you'll go on an excursus of this topic and then you'll do another one and six pages later you finally have enough background to get that to the original point point. and these what you're going through you'll go through you know you have literature you have a, a reading of a text and then you'll go to psychology And then maybe there's some statistics that totally went over my head. Um, But I want to ask, how do you see these all coming together? Um, And what do you see as maybe the through line for all of these different various um, seemingly disparate or seemingly very far away from each other disciplines? How do you how do you bring them together?
0: There's a very perceptive reading on your part, I suppose one can see a resonance with the research uh, du uh, temps perdu with Proust in the structure of it. That is to say, that work and this work are, are what, what the old rhetoricians used to call paratactic. and So it's, it's like a montage, you know, where, where to get the sense of what's at stake, you have to take in the whole and, and you can't just do it in a linear fashion. And of course, that's one of the principles. Uh, orientations or arguments of the book Parasemiosis, as I lay out in, the, in my prefatory remarks that it means to be a performance of precisely that kind of montage, that kind of bringing together, which is what I refer to as thinking in this uh, the There was an explicit text I had in mind though, more than Proust and, and that was the text by, by an uh, um, 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 11th century uh, important uh, literatus Known as El and his book uh, Kitab al-Haywan, we could translate that as the Book of Animals. I for the Book of the Living, which was his his rejoinder to Aristotle's Book of Animals. But more importantly, for sentient flesh as a performance, as a formal structure, El uh, jahids Book of, of 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 the Living was an effort to sustain the universe in narrative form. He belonged to a very specific school of thought, Mu'tazala, which I deliberately call semioticians as opposed to theologians, uh, um, translating the Arabic phrase ilm al kalam, the science of discourse, to mean semiosis. But that school believed that disputation was a way of sustaining a reality. And at the time he was composing that book, the, the empire had forbid public oral disputation. So he shifted that, that form to the right to, to writing in a very specific way. And there's a, a, a particular resonance for me in that move on El-Jahed's part with the move Toni Morrison makes, where for reasons that I would say are somewhat similar. Uh, for her, the Great Migration meant that the old forms of, of memory, of transmitting practices uh, from one generation to the other, among those that we call in this country, Black people, that the, the Great mi- Migration interrupted those forms, which were oral, which were around the kitchen table, which were around the, the, uh, the stove. And she wanted the novel to take over that historical force and power. So Al-Jahad's project was very similar. And in Sentient Flesh, I, I have Al-Jahad's project as well as Morrison's very much in mind. This goes to the question you ask about how these all come together. The question I want to explore in Sentient Flesh is in what ways uh, do those peoples who have been constituted in modernity as a particular kind of of class of social being, the Negro, Black, in in what ways do they live their lives? What are their particular life practices? But more importantly, what are their ways of thinking about or, if you will, theorizing those life practices? So I want to have a particular emphasis not on how are Blacks perceived uh, in general in the West, put it somewhat crudely by whites, but I, I'm, I'm interested in what Blacks did in terms of living life and transmitting attitudes about living and about what it is to be human in spite of the white perception. Now, that's the focal question. Because that's about a, a population responding to an historical constitution of them in modernity, that constitution touches on virtually all the structures of knowledge of modernity. Another way of putting it, and here I'm simply paraphrasing Du Bois: you can't begin to approach the question of blackness without approaching everything. Right? Uh, uh, you know, kind of like his his remark that 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 that, that the negro functions as a a tertium quid, right? A third element in this case between uh, the animal, right? the non-human and the human. And hence, that hence the, the, the focus on sentient flesh, hence my wanting to look at the way through the figure of, Wyndham, of Thomas Wyndham, his remark about us deserves our freedom because us is human flesh, the ways in which those black people understand their humanity in relationship to fleshliness, or if you will, in relationship to, to animality. And, and here, there've been a whole series of thinkers who've been trying to do this. Uh, Fred Moten, uh, uh, Kimberly Riffin, uh, uh, Paul Otka, Z- Zakia Jackson very recently, whose work I've only found in the past three months, Camille Dungy, and interestingly enough, a young poet of some importance named Joshua Bennett, who's now up at the Dartmouth. And it's focusing on this question of the ways in which Black people present themselves in relationship to animality in a way that is quite distinct from the long history of Western thought about the human which understands the human in opposition to animal. Mm-hmm. What makes sentient flesh a bit different from the works that I just cited is I want them to explore the specific practical expressions, the specific performative expressions, the buzzard-gold dance, padding juba, and the statements of those who practice them about what they're doing. I want to, to extrapolate from those careful readings a particular theory of being, of being human. Which I call parasimilism. So, going into all of those knowledges you referred to, and I'm sort of just, I, I don't pay a lot of attention to disciplinary lines as I, I follow the ways in which terms are deployed in time. I'm, I, in my formation, uh, I'm very much a philologist, and that goes back to my days in Al Azhar, where in, in engaging in, in exegesis of the text, the text being, of course, in, in Mus'haf, the Quran, the first move is the philological one right? Languages is is the realm in which constitutes our possibility of human being. So uh, because that's my tendency, when when I take up a question, I follow its its expressions across time and across as many languages as I'm capable of following it in. I am the comparativist, so that means there's more than one language I can do it in. And that gives the impression of of, of bringing together all kinds of disciplines. Of course it does, but around the question, around the exploration. And and so in exploring all of those in the first half of the book, right, the first movement, I want to clearly establish the kind of distinction that's at play in Wyndham's remark between the long Western philosophical history, what I call the history of philosophical ontology, going back to Plato and Aristotle, and what people like Wyndham are talking about. And, and in order to appreciate that distinction, I have to lay out that background, I have to make it very clear. Here are the terms, here are the epistemic terms that are at play in Plato and play to an Aristotle's understanding of the questions about art and the questions about thinking and not. And, and 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 then here are the terms that are being used by 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 people like Bessie Jones, uh, one of the great singers and performers of Juba, so that you can see the, the difference, right? You can you can appreciate that that the other, at least this is how I try to substantiate my claim, is doing something else, as, as Franz Fanon would put it. And so the second movement of the book is to try to explore the terms of that something else. right? And, and, and if I've worked well in the first movement, I can say in the second movement that that something else is not ontological. That it's not in resistance to the project of Western philosophy per se. I'll get back to that in a moment, but is, is something that's a positive to it. It's taking place in spite of that discourse. Now, one could argue that socially and politically, the ability to transmit such ways of thinking, such ways of being in the world in the midst of slavery and modernity is itself an act of resistance and even an act of refusal, a refusal to be erased. But the driver of that discourse, I'm arguing, is not the resistance itself, but the continuation of memory, but the preservation of a certain way of understanding what it is to be human. Again, that
1: western long answer but long answer but it does the work it does the work i i needed um well you brought it up and i think i think the best way to go about this is to just jump in and i want to ask about sentient flesh and uh tom Wyndham's remarks um that kind of form i don't know maybe if we think of your text fugally um because you do set it up as a musical or in a musical structure. Sentient and the, fugue,
0: flesh. and the fugue and the fugue is very much in mind.
1: Okay. I I was wondering that. Um it the sentient flesh and his remarks about us as human flesh, it repeats and it there are variations on it and it and it comes back over and over. And I I wanna ask this is a, it's a complex question, um, because what you do with it is is so complex. I think On the one hand, can you talk about Wyndham's remarks, um, which I I guess I can just, I can, he says, and you can give more background on this, but he says, I think we should have our liberty because us ain't hogs or horses. Us is human flesh. Can you kind of say more about what you're doing with this text in relation to how Wyndham's remarks are radical in comparison to um, Frederick Douglass's conception of of this and how that relates to Locke and the Lockean conception of the body, as well as, as how you're working with Hortense Spillers' conception of body and flesh. Um, I think what you do with that um, that reading from Mama's Baby, Papa's Maybe, an American grammar book. I think it's really it's really interesting how you how you not so much argue against it, but kind of push against or, or see what's going on with it?
0: Think think with it is my is, is, is my way of phrasing what I do with Hortense there, right? And and in thinking with uh, bringing to the fore something that gets lost in much of the conversation about that important essay, and that is Hortense Spiller's theoretical chop, right? The ways in which Spiller deploys uh, uh, psychoanalytic theory, this is written in the Middle the way she deploys structural skills specifically, or Lambach, which she cites, and wanting to give serious consideration to that and to uh, ask, to interrogate that, 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 that deployment. Why? What is she asking? Why is this so important? And that's why it's that, that portion is thinking through that, right? And trying to, in, in what we used to call imminent critique, by working carefully with the text, understand what's at stake and then what can be at stake for. For us, or for me as, as, as a reader. Indeed, Fugue was in mind, and, and you've understood structurally what I'm doing with that continual counterpointal structure and repet, repet, repetitive return to Wyndham's remark, right? Where Wyndham's remark fun- functions as a focal phrase, always a counterpoint for, for some section of the text that then is explored with a number of different discourses, right? Oh, so here's Wyndham using this statement that has a really profound echo, not only with Douglas's remarks about hogs and horses, but with the whole legal discourse of slave law, black code, where that figure, hogs and horses, is deployed. So that becomes the history of the deployment of the figure of hogs and horses relative to the Negro, and a very particular understanding of animality. And of course, the contrast. Between Wyndham and Douglas, is while Douglas sees this tension between the human and the non-human, and, and sees as the boys will say later, uh, uh, quite 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 rightly the the uh, tertium quid the Negro is, while Douglas sees that he sees the solution as an investment in, in in the transcendent, specifically the idea of there being uh, a soul outside of. The body, and that soul is what has rights. And here he's he's following the Lockean Enlightenment line, which, as you know, later on in the book, I, I'm able to show, invested in a very sort of kind of uh, teleology and also theological perspective. Windham, in contrast, in seeing this tension, marks that that what he is is in the fleshliness. It's it's with the animal, right? It's not in spite of the categorization of the Negro as the semi-animal right? But in fact, that animality is embraced. And in that embrace, he puts forward a different conceptualization of the human, a different taxonomy, right? Uh, And in that taxonomy, a a different way, meaning different from the tradition that Douglass is still wedded to, which we'll say is the Enlightenment conceptualization of man. And in that way, that understanding the difference is what carries, carries us into Spiller's important meditation, precisely on the importance of the flesh in relationship to the body, in relationship to the Negro. And that exploration, exploration, forgive me, allows us to begin to see and discern the ways in which Wyndham's popular statement, it's an idiomatic expression, right? It's of the folkloric sort. Really is an expression of, of a conceptualization of the human that's worth exploring. A conceptualization of the human that, that is distinctive from the capitalist, right? And that in its very insistence on expression is defying the
1: capital, is, is rejecting the capital. Um, so in, I I want to sit with the, with Spillers for a moment, because that text is, I've read it, I don't know how many times as it's been assigned, but every time I read it, I'm so like blown away. It's such an incredible piece. And in it, she says, um, before body, there is flesh. And then in your in your opening I guess maybe the preface I guess it would be the preliminary signposts you write flesh is with and not before the body and person and the body and person are with and not before or even after the flesh can you can you say more about maybe the coincidence or the uh, the contemporaneity of body and flesh and how what you're trying to get at with that um, with those remarks and maybe I don't know uh, the what body and flesh like what, what the difference? Sort of, what I just said touches
0: on that. In fact, that that remark that appears in the preliminary notes uh, uh, appears in the section on Spillers. Right? It's 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 precisely the focal point of of, of of the elaboration I want to make of what's at at play in Spillers' text. And and here's what you, where, where I I indeed as you say pushing it a bit. Right, the the, the 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 coincidence of the body of the, of the of body and flesh, uh, as expressed in in, in statement, because again that's my my principal phrase I keep going back to, because I just explained a moment ago, in the ways in which he's suggesting a uh, uh, thinking about the human that's fleshly. In, in in the case of Spillers, however, I I want to work with the attention she brings to signs of signification, systems of referentiality. In other words the ways in which her account of the hieroglyphics of, 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 of the flesh uh, 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 indicates how discursive our being is, you know, that, that the body is constituted in a very specific discursive environment, which, of course, she calls the grammar, the grammar book, merit And that's her wonderful, uh, 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 um, metonym for for what I call uh, capitalist modernity and, and uh, 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 um, capitalist slavery of modernity. But I say capitalist modernity because I want to indeed uh, invoke and reference the epistemic project of, of modernity, not just the institution of slavery. So, by foregrounding the way she does that, that, that our, our embodiment of certain sets of ideas. Is an embodiment that's performed in relation to, to a very specific discursive environment, a very specific grammar. It allows us to pause a minute and ask what that means. What, what does that mean in terms of flesh and the difference humans between flesh and the body? And my point is really a quite simple one, and that, that is that there is no flesh which is a tabula rasa. That is, as far as we are concerned as a species, we're always already somehow. Inscribed within some system of referentiality, some system of of if you will uh, of mythology, some system of conceptualizing uh, the world, reality, and ourselves in relationship to it, and all of those systems, all of those tenets have their their rules. They have their they have their dynamics, you know? and in that sense, then to the extent that any conceptualization of the phenomenal effects phenotype, are always in relationship to that particular grammar, whatever it may be, then the flesh is always in play, already with the body. And the flesh is never erased. The question is whether or not I should take that back, because one of the points that Spiller's reading of Moynihan shows is that, in fact, a very particular discourse works very hard to erase the flesh. And it's the discourse of, of a certain notion of being, a discourse that's invested in what I call the transcendent subject which, of course, is what Kant calls it. And that's a discourse that, that imagines it's possible to erase the flesh so that all that matters is the body. And of course, I point this out in some of the express things that John Locke says about it, whats what it is to be a person. right? And, and it means precisely to not be fleshly, but to be the embodiment of a set of ideas, and incentive ideas. But I want to push back and say, even that discourse can't really erase the flesh. The flesh plagues it in some particular way. Again, I'm making two points here. One, the ways in which the persistence of the flesh poses a challenge to that dominant discourse of being, what Sylvia Winters calls, you know, the discourse of man as the overrepresentation of the human. But also the ways in which flesh always being present, and here I'm thinking of Wyndham Lewis enables a whole other way of thinking about the human. So it's a double move there. I'm engaging with Spiller. Okay. On, on the one hand, she's able to show, or at least I can read her to show, that the, the dominant discourse of Western modernity is always challenged by the flesh. Or as I say later on in the text, the persistence of the flesh reveals a challenge inherent in the ontological discourse. Uh, but at the same time, the particular semiosis under study, Oasis in Black, I call it, has an explicit understanding of the human as flesh, as the explicit understanding of the human with and in an
1: Thank you. That that was a great <laughs> explication of something that I, I was very, it was a hard argument to follow, but it, it was a good one in your book. Um, I, I, I'm I, glad you, you could explain that. Um, but you
0: brought, you taught... One of the ways it gets hard to follow, if I may, of course, is the excursions into Bach, Well, I have to explain uh you know the basis of Hortense's analysis. And with all of my again the text is paratactic. It's really performing some parataxis, which is v- very much synonymous with what I call parasiniosis. In that excursus, I'm also presenting the flaws in the ontological project. Everything I just said a moment ago about its limitations and its effort to erase the flesh, back to performs. And it's significant that he performs it, Expressly with regard to the Negro, the Negro, right, and the ways in which that that figure for him becomes emblematic of, 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 of certain failures of,
1: of mythology. I mean, for me, when I was reading it, I was like, I should go back and read Barthes. Like, <laughs> I need to read Mythologique again. Um, but you write, um, I'll, I'll quote you on page one eighty five. Um, you say that we can say that. Negro is the signification of the mythical semiological system, the signifier and concept of which are flesh slash captive body and socio-political order of racialized capitalist slavery, respectively. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you write um, a few lines later, so that the myth of Negro social pathology derives its nourishment via the formal dynamics of ethnicity from the meaning of Negro as the signification of the first order myth, which derives its nourishment via the captive black body from the flesh. There is, in other words, a double theft. Ethnicity steals from Negro, which has robbed from flesh. Um, I'm wondering if, can you ta- say a little bit more about this mythological um, system that you're bringing up? I thought it was...
0: Let me, if I can contextualize the, the, the remark you made, because that, that'll go some way to, to answering your question, right? The, the uh, main um, clause... That, uh, that you didn't read, that begins that passage. Giving to Fuller's usage of Bach's semiological analysis of myth, we can say that neglect is the signification of the, of the semiological theory. So what I'm referencing there is precisely Bach's theory, which I try to lay out, which, which has a set of tiers in, in, in which, in which uh, the act of mythification is a, is a certain kind of theft, uh, and it's it's a theft of of, of means. And for him, this is part of that that whole piece was a popular piece that he wrote, aiming at uh, demystification of advertising, advertisement, and the way it works. And so I'm I'm playing with with that structure which Hortens plays with because it generates certain kinds of generative diet, flesh, active body, social, political, order, racialized, capitalist society respectively. Now, having situated. This moment in the text, my reading of Bach and Hortense's reading of Bach. The point I'm making here is how that carries over into Moynihan's attempt to use the term ethnicity in a way that functions just like flesh and captive body functions in the in the discourse of slavery. In other words, ethnicity, Negro slash ethnicity, right? where, where ethnicity now is supposed to steal the force, the meaningfulness of the term Negro, to put it to different work. And part of Hortense's critique of money, and it's a critique I'm echoing is, is precisely the ways in which that use of ethnicity is not at all emancipatory it's not liberal it's not at all positive for the Negro but it serves a very particular mythology it hides itself and that mythology is of the Negro problem of Negro mythology that once hand engages this kind of mythology of ethnicity he naturalizes those specific practices and He's looking specifically at what he considers the, the deleterious effect of matrilineal structures. To quote Moynihan, in a society, the U.S. society that is primarily patriarchal, to be matrilineal is to be crippled. And the reason the Negro male suffers in this society is because of the matrilineal structure. He 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 with ethnicity naturalizes that proposition, as he points out. Right. And in that move, of course, and here's where he's ethnically stealing the force of the meaning of Negro, merely reiterates the discourse of the non humans of the Negro. And again, does this in, in the guise of being, I think the term of art today is an ally, being a friend of the Negro. And so my point there is to show that the analysis that Barth offers of myth, that Hortense has taken up apropos of the body and the flesh, he also is using in understanding what's wrong with the Moynihan report, right? and 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 so ethnicity itself is subject to the same sort of difficulty that the negro was subject to it doesn't it doesn't change the system signification and of course, if you go down a page uh, i I graphed that uh, and this is this is this is no more than uh, uh an iteration of the graph that Bach generates in uh uh, uh, myth today, uh, uh, and, and uh, straight up, whereby it says signifier signified, I put in West African as the point of the signifier. Sign, mythical signifier meaning form, flesh, enslaved, captive body, etc. You can see it's graft. And in the grafting, you can see the movement I just tried to describe, so that when you get to the, the, uh, 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 the, the, the sign itself, which is Negro, You've got the mythical signifier, meaning and form, and that mythical signifier is Negro slash ethnicity, and then you've got the mythical signified concept. What the Negro signifies is matriarchal family structure, right? And then the next order sign, of course, that matriarchal family structure is a sign of social pathology, specifically Negro social pathology. And Negro social pathology then, of course, itself, uh, entails the Negro himself. This is where Barth naturalizes it. And the concept that's at play for Barth is widespread social disorder resulting from this, this Negro pathology, if it's allowed to continue. Right? And then what's called for is a case for national action. So all of that is showing the ways in which, in which Barth's use of semiology to analyze and critique the force of myth and advertisement, which was his focus that Hortense then deploys to understand what's at stake in the term of the body and the flesh and the Negro also gets applied in, in Moynihan's use of ethnicity, that, that you can see the grammar at work, right? You can see the ways in which these terms actually are part of a, a system of referentiality, again, what Hortense calls the American grammar.
1: Thank you. <laughs> I wish you taught me, Barthes. Um, I... <laughs> I remember reading that text in a library and just being like, "I'm not sure what's going on." Um, although I, I, will say my professors were great; nothing to knock them on. Um, but I, I want to move on a different, in a different direction, and kind of go back to the concept of poiesis in black. Um, and so, I think almost like a Spinoza's, like we don't know yet what a body can do. In in what in your text, you're looking at exactly what bodies do what black bodies do and how they push against or don't fit within or cannot be circumscribed within a western ontological system and, and you write that they are non-ontological um i'm can you say more about um perhaps i don't know my favorite part of the text was talking when you talked about the the slave songs um can you talk about poesis in black and and maybe give an idea of how that relates to um, what you call saying possibility and perhaps the difference, the possibility of a different world.
0: Yes. Uh, my, my, my paraphrase is we cannot, we cannot know what the flesh would and, and, and so, in fact, I, I want to show with respect to Black poise what, what certain bodies do, yes? But in their doing, the ways in which they're doing always, Reveals the endless possibility of signification with the flesh, which is why, in, in in looking at those slave songs, and of course, my argument in that section is is is, is part of my epistemological concern. It, it it is an argument with the the epistemic, the taxonomy of of of, of collection and organizing that belongs to the curators the curators in this case are, are the Lomaxes father and son uh, they're the curators of people like for example Allen or or, or, or Lucy. They're, they're the curators of, of black musical form Oh, by the way uh, going back to alan uh, they're 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 recording this form in order to re- redeem themselves from modernity it's part of the transcendentalist project and, and in that way they they really anticipate what would become the negrophilia of, of, of primitivism among the French art world in the 20th century. Right? They're primitivists, and they, they postulate that the Negro is a primitive form untouched by the corrupting elements of modernity. So if, if, if we can somehow collect their forms, these kind of artifacts, and understand them, that will save us, that will show us a way out of our predicament. And so I want to to, to mark, the, the stakes in that project and, and the ways in which as a project is invested in a very hierarchical structure of what it's called the epistemological, based on a certain privileging, overprivileging of, 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 of the syllogistic and logical structure, the apophantic. And I want to contrast that with the, the knowledge and know-how of the performers of the music, what they're doing with their music, but also what they say they're doing with their music, right? And they say this to the collectors who are collecting it. And there's this interesting tension you know, between what they're saying with their, with their music and what they're saying about their music. And, and, and it's significant that when you, when you look at McDermott's early work and when you look at Allen's work, they both, they both foreground the fact that there are aspects of the performances that they are witnessing that resist transcription. They've got to transcribe these. Live performances into musical notation and into narrative description of performances. And they both mark that they are very pronounced elements that are central to the performance, which resist transcription. And they, they regard those as being African. African now becomes the marker, the sort of empty signifier for all those things that don't fit within the epistemological structure of, of, uh, of collections which don't fit within the epistemic of the philosophical ontological project that they belong to. At the same time, when they're interviewing performers, the performers tell them what they're doing. And, and what they tell them is along a completely different line of thought than the one the collectors are invested in. So in that section, I want to mark that difference and then try and follow what, what it is they're, they're saying. You know, When Desi had explains what the buzzard looked is, right? Uh, 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 when the Johnsons explain to Lomax, the sister, or to Parrish, what what uh, uh, the buzzard loop is, or what the songs are, uh, when various people talk to uh, Alan about room, uh, which he doesn't record, but Lomax starts his project, Lomax the father, John, in an, e- in an effort to actually record that music, all of those are clear statements of a way of 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 thinking about music, of thinking about what they're doing, that really departs from the musicologist project and really departs from the the the, the 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 project of philosophical ontology. And it's in that way I'm saying they're not ontological. And if you remember at the very end of that, that section, I offer up what I think is a very wonderful illustration of both this tension and congruence mm-hmm but also the fact that there is a positive expression of a way of thinking that's accessible. You just have to think differently. And that's when when the son, Alan is has done this, uh, he's he's in charge of directing music for an historical small documentary about Williamsburg, uh, uh, Williamsburg, Virginia, of course, uh, in which he was was there to to authenticate or legitimate the representation of 18th century uh, Negro music playing in Williamsburg. And he brought together all kinds of important musicians from Virginia, but also from the, the Georgia and the, the South Carolina seacoast and island uh, to perform in a jam session after filming. And it's included in his, his album release of the music for that film. And he remarks in writing in the, in the liner notes on this that it was a very lively jam session, yes, but he couldn't speak to its authenticity. And I point out, the authenticity he's talking about is the authenticity of the curator's collection. And when you listen to the recording itself, there's a conversation among the performers about performance, which makes it very clear that they're working with a different structure of knowledge, right? And it's also important that that contrary to Lomax, that this is a form primarily of the, of the Seacoast Island, you know, there are people from Mississippi who are arguing, I know that how to play that, I know that. Right? It's, it, it, and it's, it's very clearly there. So that becomes a nice illustration for me of, of, of the two aspects of this, right? the tension between the musicological account and the performance, but then also the different thinking. So it becomes in this difference between episteme and techne poetic, a, a, a know-how, a knowing how to produce, and a knowing how to produce that is poetic in the classical sense of generation, of bringing into being in performance. Now, all of that is a kind of account of a certain parasemiosis is at play. And black poesis becomes then a particular iteration of such parasemiosis. And, you know, that example uh, of the Lomax uh, recording uh,
1: being an example of such black poesis. I want to I wanna say something about what you... Um a tension that you draw out in the text or another tension, which is between practice and, and I guess maybe we would say thinking or practice and theory, theory, praxis, um, the performance and talking about the performance. And I think one of the things that you articulate in this is that, that, that divide is not a helpful one. Can you say, can you say more about how, what you're thinking on that is and how maybe that can, I don't know. I don't, it sounds a little too chipper to be like, how yeah, does that how do help us in the pa- I don't know. I just, I, I, don't, do you have- I don't have a passage in mind necessarily, but what you've talked about in the sense that like their performance and then how the people, the, how the people in the performance talk about the performance. So there's, I think there's a, there would be a, a desire to say like there's a difference between practice in theory or practice and thinking but i think one of what you're ch- one of the things that you do in this book is say that 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 divide is not so clear nor is it so helpful i think can you can you kind of explain what you're trying to do ag- against making that divide yeah,
0: yeah yes i do that in the book uh, in, in three important moves one of which, the second of which, I just described uh, uh, with regards to slaves and and what I say there very simply is the difference between episteme and techné, Techno poetically, as I just described. The other place I do it, in the first place I do it, is is with respect to Aristotle, when when I'm 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 exploring the conceptual genealogy, the conceptual history of the the French. Uh, um, um surrealist. In this case, uh, um, 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 Michel Larice's investment in Negro form, and you know that's an investment that's also curatorial. That's an investment that, just like Allen's
1: uh,
0: Negro form, is is predicated on the belief that the Negroes are, are are pure pre-modern form of what we used to be in our goodness, and so by embracing those forms, we can return to our goodness. And and in, in wanting to explore the conceptual genealogy of this concept of Leavis, this thing, um, um I, I I carry it back to its Aristotelian premises and and that very famous passage that we always actually misquote about about art imitating nature and the way in which what's at stake for Aristotle there is is and it's also quite interesting that 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 that, that he really is arguing and I laid this out in the book the ways in which nature works like art and 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 that means foregrounding oasies as this, this process of of, of, of of creation and the notion of completeness is that is that human capacity to create can generate forms and can generate whole worlds and systems of referentiality and of course what's at stake for him partly in that is to insist still on the the ascendancy, the superiority of the kind of epistemological analysis he's just laying out about physics and art. And that's the analysis of science, of what he calls the of what, of what in the in, 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 in terms you're using you would call theory, right? a particular kind of rational thinking, or as he calls it, right discourse. And he wants to establish the ascendancy of that over poetic expression in and of itself. So poetry can do all of the stuff that's creative, but understanding what poetry is doing is the preserve of the philosopher. We can explain to poetry itself. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm arguing in that passage, apropos with that even in Aristotle, you can see the political stakes there, or if you will, the epistemological contestation at play here, where he wants to, to claim something as privileged knowledge over another kind of knowledge, which he calls technic knowledge of technique, technicoethica. This is his term. And in spite of that distinction, it becomes clear that there is no essential difference. There's a formal difference, but the difference in form, the difference between the syllogistic structure of expression and let's say the more metaphoric, uh, 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 and that's a long discussion itself about whether you can actually call it this, but I'll call it that for the moment, expression of the poem, the the formal difference does not, at all indicate that one is essentially better than the other. So the distinction of theory and practice doesn't really hold. And and having established that, when I get to the section that we just talked about a moment ago, around not just slave songs, but the, uh, the buzzer because this is a, a figure I keep coming back to, the problem of the fetish, the problem of the, the primitive in the text, that there again, we have a techné poeticae, which is capable of organizing our thinking, which is capable of instituting practices of performance and practices of knowledge, so that thinking is performing. Thinking is is within in the performance. It's with being. Thinking is not transcendent from thinking is not outside of of the phenomenon. It's it's a function. It's the function of what people do. Is is that. Yeah. Or? Yeah. I mean, no, that you, makes a, that a, a lot helpful? of sense.
1: the The last point that the, the I think it's something that you're getting at is the the poetic aspect of performance that it it, it doesn't there's something being brought into the world in these in these movements and it, it's not reliant upon an outsider coming in and theorizing. It's it, it comes about in its own. Well,
0: but also yes, and I'm also trying to foreground the poetic, the poetic nature of thinking, the poetic nature of theory. Right. So, for example, when when I write, the uh, the buzzard lope is not just. And and and, 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 and here is, is after I've I've quoted uh, uh, Bailey, who was considered like the, the historical source when she was alive, of of the cultural forms on St. Simon's Island and Sapelo Island, which she's, she's uh, uh, described very vividly uh, uh, how her father's and his colleagues, his comrades would perform the buzzard lope on certain kind of Fridays when it was particularly rough during the week and they got particularly drunk and what it meant, right? And, and she's described, she's offered up a wonderful uh, 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 exegesis of the performance And in that exegesis showing, here's how we think about it. Here's what it's doing as a a structure of knowledge. And so I say the buzzard lope is not just about identifying with carrion, with the prey. It is about becoming the buzzard. And in so doing, becoming free to fly effortlessly and long on the currents. As a form of performative animal mimicry, the buzzard lope obviously entails Techné poetic. This is on page two forty two. Right, so I'm I'm returning to what I laid out as I just explained with Aristotle, a know-how of poesis, as well as a cunning, with respect to the performance of that poesis before whites. Right, what we call metis, drawing attention to the classical association of such cunning with the sort of sharp intelligence evidence in Bailey's account. Of their privately laughing at whites. And and of course, that has to do with the the relationship between this Greek concept of of, of metis, which of course is what what Odysseus has, and the conceptualization of mixture of of metis. So, in that second spot, I'm I'm showing how this technique is indeed an institution, in the rico sense of institutio, of an order of thinking, if you will, even an order of knowledge also. Uh, in and with performance, and as you just said, no, not outside of performance. It's not the position of the curator or the ethnobotanicalist collector. Now, I'm not trying here to romanticize the performer, because as I discuss those forms, those are all communal forms. The Bazit Lok Juba, those spirituals, they're communal forms, right? That 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 in their performance, everyone gets wrapped up in. So so there's no uh, uh, pure distinction between audience and performer.
1: Thank you, I, I, that helped out a lot. Um, well, I want to move on to another question um, that I think it's ob- it's obviously tied to it because it comes from the same book. But I, you write about how um, parasemiosis or is the ins- poesis in black is an instantiation of um, parasemiosis, and I wonder can you kind of explain your concept of Parasemiosis um, and how what I think the what you're going through like the being beside and para ontology and how those operate together and um, how it's not a flight from I, I really liked that description um, it's not moving away from it's if it's not that what is it um, so those are my questions yeah <laughs> they're big ones yeah that's <laughs> <laughs> the whole chapter
0: well yeah i mean cuz i take i take 265 pages to to uh um um to to earn that statement so that it, so that it makes so it makes sense right uh uh you're uh, uh, jumping ahead to uh, uh to page 387 387 yeah, yeah. that's Heidegger on ontological so well, not 265 386 pages <laughs> to to learn that, uh, uh, of course, the first simple answer uh, to, to this is is to, to try to describe what I mean by partizanism, and and what I'm what I'm trying to indicate by that term is is a, a, a way of of uh, expressing our collective being that is not based upon a narrative of singular origin, and is not based upon a narrative of of uh, unilinear develop. And by that, I mean also, is then not based upon a narrative that presumes that we're moving towards a particular telos or we're moving towards a particular resolution of all things and end of the world. So that's what it's not. Just put it in the primitive. What parasomiosis is then is an understanding of, of our collective being in terms of the perpetual confluence, is the term I use, of a number of of uh, uh, systems of referentiality, a number of semiosis. One of one of the examples I tried to elaborate for this in the book and then elsewhere in another essay is what takes place in the hold of the slave ship and the ways in which those people brought onto the slave ship. Already, each of them is part of some particular semiosis. Let's say it's Halpular or or Wolof or Mambara, uh, uh, um, um, um some sonic, some specific Mende, some specific uh, uh, system of referentiality, which has its own grammar regarding uh, positional, positionality, if you will, regarding subjectivity. if There is one regarding the relationship between individual elements, and they're put into the whole, and they're confronted with another semiosis, Spanish or French uh, or English, but what I'll call overall the semiosis of, of capitalist enslavement. And, and they have to find some way of, of, of coming together. And they develop techniques of coming together. Stuckley, Sterling Stuckley pointed this out 30 years ago in his book on the slave, slave ship. Uh, uh, their way of coming together is, is to allow all those different semioses to, conf, to con, come into confluence without foregrounding one of the others being superior. And, and that's a particular uh, way of, 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 of articulating some kind of common cause in the midst of almost anarchic disorder. Right? Having that kind of orientation is being parasemiotic. <clears throat> that is to say, being in the confluence, or as I say in the book, being at the crossroads using a figure from the blues, which is a figure that describes the same process that I'm describing. It's the process that uh, Edouard Glissant calls uh, with respect to the Caribbean. Right? Having that kind of orientation towards being, uh, and being in common, is being parasamiate. Now, my argument here is that, is that such an orientation is widespread and something that's available across the species. And it's one of the possible ways that sociality is constituted. Here I don't go into any kind of encyclopedic list of all of the occurrences of that. I'm not so sure that would be possible, nor even Desirable. Here I'm trying to make the point that, that this particular way, black poesis or poesis in black, is an instance of that parasemiosis. And, and the move there is, as I just said, to establish that parasemiosis, which is a poetic, is something that's available to the species at large. It, it's, it, it comes out of what Wyndham shows us when he shows us as a way of thinking about being human that's different, It becomes then a way of trying to reorient ourselves in understanding the history and the nature of the species. What do we do? How are we? What is the human? And to want to think about it along those parasemiotic terms. Poesis in black is only one instance of it. So while it's something that, in my account of it, is indissolubly associated with black people, right? they have been engaged in a parasemiotic mode. They have been practicing A poesis in black, meaning in historical context of the context having been enslaved, et cetera, et cetera. So while it is in associated with black people, in other words, they are parasemiotic. Not everyone who is black is parasemiotic. And that could be an interesting argument, whether one wants to make this distinction about what is and what isn't black. Hopefully this is not an argument you and I will have right now. But, But more to the point, it's not unique to them. You don't have to be black to be parasemiotic. And and of course, the point of the coda and the exploration of Nabil Ferris's meditation upon James Baldwin is to offer up evidence of that. Here's another context, and a context not circumscribed by capitalist slavery, in which there's a comparable investment in Poesis and in the parasemiotic. And of course, the context therefore for Nabil Ferris. Is the, the, the confluence of, of 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 Islamic and pagan elements, of of Arabic, and if you will, Occitanus in this case, amazigh elements that come together to articulate uh, uh, what he wants to call the revolutionary Algerian consciousness. So the point there is, okay, here's another instance of parasamiosis, right, and 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 one that is expressly invested in the poet in the poetic in poesis that isn't black, right. But that can recognize the resonances between the different instances.
1: Yeah, that the coda was it, it was so amazing, and it was so it was so great to get to that at the end, especially after um, the section on um, love improper and the yeah. possibility of love and um, like in non um, agapeic love. Um, I'm wondering if you could just say a, a few words, a, a little teaser of um, that, <laughs> of your conversation on love um, yeah. Yeah. and how that kind of fits in and moves into the into the coda.
0: Yeah, that's part of, of course, the the text begins with an extended reading of W.E.B. Du Bois' first published piece of fiction. Uh, and, and, and it's it's the only original piece that appears. In the 1903 collection the famous collection the souls of black books of course the piece i'm referring to is the short story of the coming of john and and so i begin with a very extensive reading of, of the coming of john and and that reading takes us into a reading of some of Du Bois's, um unpublished work including his work as a graduate student under william james uh, in which we can see what du Bois's own epistemological intervention was, and he's quite explicit in this. And my point there is to extrapolate out of those pieces a certain theory of, of knowing, which I call the hyperbolic uh, uh, and the asymptotic, based upon uh, uh, um, uh, an expressed statement of Du Bois's to Herbert Aptheker in 1956. So that's where it begins, but that's also where it almost ends, going to the issue of law, right? Because again, the, the, it, it's it's a fugal structure and there's a very specific issue of rhythm involved here. And there's a very explicit play on issues of repeti- repetition and and tension, the counterpoint. So we come back to Renaissance of Ethics and we come back to Bois, and we come back to the ways in which, and we come back to it in order to to deal with an issue that comes up in the course of thinking about Poases in Black and that's the problematic of, of sacrifice and suffering. And, and when we come back to it in that moment, what I'm interested in there, in, in, that, in that section, is a careful exploration of the of Bois' concept of the gospel of sacrifice. This is his term he uses. And, and I'm in a certain kind of argument with some contemporary thinkers that want to uh, uh, um, 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 establish the Bois' Christian credentials, even though he's quite explicit in his criticism of Christianity. And the establishment of those Christian credentials on their part has to do with an investment, in, in the Pauline notion, really, it's the Johannian notion of beloved community, and that that is the, the solution to social justice, is to arrive at beloved community. So working through Du Bois, I'm challenging that. And in challenging that, I explore what Du Bois means by sacrifice and what he means by love, right? And of course, this is come, I come back to in the Coda with Baldwin, who's quite clear in his articulation of love, is something that's that's not quite Christian, and so that that exploration of of, of, of agape, the term that the Septuagint uses to translate the, the Hebrew habar, uh, love, um, 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 that section is is to aims at trying to establish, uh, and I think I do it successfully. Time will tell, and uh, the readers will say that that the voice's position on love is not agape. And and, and, and and that has precisely with his notion of sacrifice and what he does with the concept of love. And so if it's not agape, what is it? What kind of love is it? And what I postulate, it's it's not a love of propriety. Uh, um, it's not a love grounded in the transcendence of the father or the son, which gets transferred over into the secular world as as the, the love of the pater. Uh, 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 or even in, in the European Roman tradition, you know, uh, the, the love of the, of the lover towards the beloved. It's not, if it's not that, if it's not proprietary in that way, if it's not proper in that way, what kind of love is it? Well, it's an improper love. And it's improper in the most radical sense, not simply that it's lewd or that it's illicit, but that it it, it eschews completely any presumption of propriety, any presumption of ownership, any presumption of of, forgive me, the redemptive force of love. But it, it opens up love as a particular kind of dynamic interaction of sociality that, that, that calls for, if not demands, a particular kind of ethics. And, and uh, that, of course, becomes then the theme that gets taken up wonderfully in the exchange between Baldwin and Ferris and in their respective meditations upon the ways in which modernity uh, uh, is killing their loved ones, right? and 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 what is the grander significance of that fact right that, that this killing is not merely some sort of aberration of the project of modernity but it's fundamental to the project of modernity and 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 all the more perversely so in that it's it, this project presents itself in the name of love love of knowledge right uh, uh, where where love love necessarily means extermination it means conquest it means dominance, or as, as Ferez says, it means this notion of the patriotic state and patriotism to the state. And they both want to offer up, both Baldwin and, and Ferez, a concept of love that isn't at all that. And insignificantly for me, both of them are doing so not merely in abstraction, but they're, 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 they're doing so in engagement with, with life practices of love among the socialities that they've been engaged in. For Baldwin Black Sociology. Excuse me, and for Fair is the sociality of Algeria, which, if you look at the coda, we can't just simply call Arabic, right? Because it's parasemiotic. There, there are all kinds of elements there. So that even the Arabic that's spoken is, is itself the articulation of, of, of a mixture. And, and that's why the whole excursus on Al Jahid and the notion of mixture vis vis the Arabic language in that coda is, is central, that there's a conceptualization of Arabic as being fundamentally. That of admixture, of sort of dynamic, untamable, oceanic movement.
1: <clears throat> well, thank you. Um, yeah, that, I love that last chapter. Um, it was great. Um, well, I hope what I just said was useful. Yeah, it was. It was. Um, well, I have one last question, and mm-hmm. it's it might be the it might be the easiest or the hardest. I don't know. It depends on you. Um, but what are you what are you thinking about now? What is what is up next? What's on the horizon?
0: Yeah, I, I'm still thinking about parasamiosis and wanting to explore iterations of it and to, to elaborate it in relation to those iterations. So um, there's a project that I've been sort of uh, chipping away at for more than a decade now. And, and it has to do with, um, um, uh, for lack of a better term, the uh, expressions of blackness in, in, the, in the Arabic world. But specifically in 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 what in 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 the African Arabic context, and I say that very deliberately because I want to eschew this distinction between north and south, because the Sahara and the Sahel are have always been a very populated and dynamically populated region. It's not a barrier at all. So in wanting to explore some of the specific aspects of that in relationship to current movements of of so social and political change in Tunisia, in Algeria, in Morocco, even in Mauritania, uh, and across the Sahara, where there are all kinds of questions emerging about the nature of the historical socialities that exist there, frankly, about, about you know w- what Arab means, and in which there have been long-standing uh, black populations. I want to explore those facts and I want to explore the, 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 the way I'm thinking about it now, the sort of perhaps, perhaps, I repeat, perhaps generative relationship between uh, indigeneity and blackness. Uh, 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 ostensibly in that context of, of, of Africa, but also uh, I think you can hear the resonances with some of the issues that are at play in Cynthia Flash and were also at play in my first book, This Forming the American Canon. And it, it's very much a project that that is indebted in no small me- measure still to the thinking of uh of uh glisson that would be some in france I know. uh then there's another project that i've been working on uh, that wants to look at the um that's why i call it the of droplets, but i'm i'm departing from that 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 title it doesn't work quite well because i want to look at the uh, the development of the concept of popular sovereignty and its movement from a particular abstract term used by, by the bourgeoisie in their contestation against the crown to a moment that we have right now in which there actually is some sort of force of legitimacy emerging from various populations. We used to call it power to the people when I was a young man. And that, that, that means looking at the connection between very specific tendencies of rebellion <clears throat> and what we might call uh a, a social disorder and and the possibilities of constituting what fanon would call something else another another order of sociability. sociality right? so that's that's the second well there are two projects more <laughs> and that's 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 the second of them and one of the things that 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 connects all of them is is um um th- there has been a long discourse i'm thinking of oh let's say uh, um 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 Victor Anderson, or, or let's say Thurman or Long, uh, about uh, uh, in which, uh, and including Cornell West, in which, and I also include Sherman Jackson in this, uh, uh, in which, uh, um, one of the definitions of of, of 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 black American culture, if you will, is resistance and rebellion, right? where blackness is associated with resistance and rebellion. And so one of the questions I want to explore is, well, what is the possibility of a notion of blackness that isn't predicated on resistance and rebellion? Because what's at stake in, in in making it resistance and rebellion is, well, what happens when you're successful in rebellion? Well, then blackness disappears, right? So by looking at the situation in Africa I'm talking about, and by looking at this question of riot and rebellion, I, I'm wanting to explore that and trying to find specific instances where there is something that is... Uh, of the order of Poeces in Black that isn't predicated on rebellion or resistance. You've gone moot. I can't hear you. Well, <clears throat> we've completely lost
1: sound. Am I back? Now you're back. Okay, great. Um, well, I was there's
0: saying... There is a third project, by the way, that wants to look at the relationship between the universal in particular, taking its point of entry, a, a long-standing debate for the past 20 years in African philosophy. But that's... <laughs>
1: Well, those all sound like monumental projects. Um, oh, no, they're small books. They're small books. Okay, yeah, I mean, this was a small book. <laughs> um, well, whatever turns whatever they turn into, I, I hope that we can have the chance to, to have you back on the network um, and talk again. I'd. Love um, to be back. This was a great conversation. I'd
0: love, to be, I'd love to be back. you have to say with your quib, though, I can't afford to produce another book like that. I, I will not visit that upon the world. <laughs> that some might rightly concede, consider an act of cruelty on me.
1: No, oh, I don't think it was cruelty. I don't know. Maybe maybe a little. It was It was hard to get through, but a, a good kind of hard, you know. It was it was nice to be challenged in that way <laughs> for that long. Uh,
0: well, I'm pleased that you found it readable. That's what I
1: yeah, it was. Definitely readable. If
0: it's going to be long, at least it. Yeah, long. it
1: was readable. Um,
0: thank you very much for having. me. Yeah,
1: thank you for being on the show. Um, once again, that was um, Professor R. A. Judy speaking about his book *Sentient Flesh: Thinking in Disorder, Poesis in Black*, which was out from Duke University Press. Um, thank you for listening, and until next time.